Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Michael Bird is with us today. He is dean and lecturer in New Testament at Ridney College uh, in Melbourne, Australia. He is the author of many books, including What Christians Ought to Believe and Evangelical Theology. His new book is Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, A Christian Case for Liberty, Equality, and Secular Government. Welcome, Dean Bird. Well, Mark, thank you for having me, and can I say I'm a, uh, a long-time fan of the First Things podcast, and in fact, I'm so much of a fan, I nearly enrolled at Wyoming Catholic College the other day with its uh, great outdoors, fantastic books <laughs> program where low ceilings are bad for the soul. So, um, so the advertising is having an effect on me, you can tell the Wyoming Catholic College people that, so, but it's great Good. to talk to you, Mark. Good, good. You know, we, we've got an associate editor here, uh, uh, Vicki, who is uh, who's a graduate of Wyoming Catholic College, and she's pretty good. So we're, we we want to see more of, of those of those kids coming out of, of those schools. Uh, the the book is uh, it, it just came out, and uh, let me let me say first just just for our uh, for our listeners who. Uh, we, we actually have a lot of first things contacts in Australia. I was there a few years ago and uh, for a week of lectures and uh, had several first things readers come out. Uh, back to Cardinal Pell. Uh, that case was a big thing in Australia. Was it a big thing among regular citizens or really just Catholics? Oh, no, it was a big thing in the media. Uh, it was it was a tremendous case. Um, it touched on many. Uh, things in Australian society. Obviously, you've got the uh, historical cases of sexual abuse against minors in the Catholic Church, the way that's been handled or mishandled, and you've had similar you know, things happen in the US, particularly in Boston. So that lingers over the whole thing. And th- that kind of haunted all of the discussions. And recently, uh, just a, you know, last week when we had uh, Cardinal Pell's funeral, the funeral was protested yeah. vigorously. And, uh, you know, it, it was very it was very political. Comedians wrote songs, you know, mocking him about him. There was a kind of get Pell campaign. And, you know, it was it was a very difficult uh, time, I think, for Catholics in Australia, because on the one hand, wanting to make a very strong stand against sexual abuse. But on the other hand, uh, there was a real there was a real vendetta against Pell and. Uh, his case, uh, he was, you know, he was accused of historic child sex offences. His case, he was found guilty by a jury. He was found guilty then by an appellate court, uh, two judges to one, and then he was acquitted by the Australian High Court, our version of SCOTUS, seven to zero. So the High Court was unanimous wow. in saying 
uh, there was not enough evidence to reach a conviction. And, you know, and that left, led, led to a lot of outcry and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's been, it's, it's a very controversial period and a, a difficult time for Catholic yeah. and state relations in Australia. Uh, you, you talk in the book gen- about some general conditions in Australia. What is the general statement of re- the general state of religious freedom for devout Christians in your country? Any any uh, any, any general remarks to make first? Well, the general remark I would say this: you've got to remember that um, my state, Victoria, is so progressive it makes uh, it makes California look like Alabama in comparison. <laughs> you, you, I think you said that in the book, yeah. Yeah, so you've, you've got to understand that we yeah. you know, we are just cut in a, in a, in a in a different world. Uh, or we live in a different world. Um, now, at one level, there is low level of government interference in matters of religion, okay? There is low level of government, and I, I don't think Christians can say that in Australia they are persecuted. But there is a high level of social hostility towards matters of religion, and you get that in the media. You get that in the very way that religious freedom is discussed. We have uh, an Australian broadcaster called the the Australian the ABC, and every time they write an article on religious freedom, it seems to have basically four points. Point one, uh, right-wing nutjob claims we have a religious freedom problem. Point two, uh, leading lawyers point out that religious nutjob is technically correct. Uh, point three, uh, LGBT activists are worried that expansions of religious freedom will be injurious to the uh, LGBT community. I mean, you know, fair enough. And then point four, which is always my favorite part, where they get a quote from a Uniting Church minister, kind of like United Methodist or the Episcopal Church, where a Uniting Church minister says something to the effect that religious freedom is nothing more than a heteronormative hate crime and it should be replaced <laughs> with a golden statue of Oprah draped in a rainbow flag and all people should bow down and worship it on pain of death. Basically, in, in our national broadcaster, that's the way they report on religious freedom. And even saying things that... And there was, there was one article that said... if. You know, if a, if a government proposal for a religious freedom bill, it was going to lead to Christians going around verbally abusing disabled people. There, were, I'm not, sure. there was an article on that saying if religious freedom is expanded, then all these Pentecostals or charismatic Catholics are going to go around verbally abusing disabled people, telling them the reason they're disabled is because of how evil they are or, or, or stuff like It was just the worst fear-mongering I can imagine. So... Low levels of government interference in matters of religion, uh, but, there, but there is a certain degree of hostility. And I, I should say we also have higher rates of Islamophobia, and we do have instances of anti-Semitism as well. So, yeah, that's the current, current lay of the land in Australia as I see it. Well, you, you say something, and I think that the qualifier in your term really relates to the, the social, uh, cultural side instead of the legal forms of, of persecution – uh, you sort straight off in the book that people of faith must be, quote, willing to lose their cultural privileges uh, when they when they refuse to violate, to compromise their beliefs. Cultural privileges. Give, give, what, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. In the Australian Parliament, they always open by saying the Lord's Prayer. Uh, now, part of me likes that. Uh, but I also do worry that it simply becomes an instance of civil religion, okay? And I, I don't want uh, Christianity to be performed because of how it looks on camera uh, or if it's disassociated from genuine and deep uh, piety 
and commitment to, to Christian faith, to Christ, and to the Christian tradition. And I'm not alarmed if, if uh, the Lord's Prayer, saying the Lord's Prayer, uh, is no longer said at the beginning of Parliament. I'm, I'm no longer, I wouldn't be alarmed at that. Uh, I'm more alarmed at other things, such as uh, whether um, schools, Christian schools, religious schools in Australia, will be able to hire people that uh, represent their belief, identity, and values. And, and that's probably where we have. Much like America, the real epicenter of the conflict is between religious freedom and LGBT rights. Things that I regard as two inherently good things, religion should not be weaponized against sexual minorities, but I think forcing a Muslim school to hire a gay atheist as its principle is not going to end well. Uh, you, you look at the United States at one point in the book, and you say that when you read the 2016 Democrat Party platform, that, that your jaw dropped. What was so shocking about that document for you? Well, you had a statement saying that the Democrat Party affirms religious freedom within a progressive vision. So that is religious freedom within the domain or the orbit of progressive orthodoxy. Uh, and I, I thought that was a very concerning, and that was a very uh, telling indication of the attitude towards religious freedom. I'm glad to say the subsequent uh, document produced by the Democrat Party uh, in, uh, what was it, 2020, uh, during Biden's election, is that provided a much better statement about religious freedom and didn't go hardball. Um, there's some very interesting parallels between the 2016 and the 2017 uh, elections in, in America, the president in, in America and in Australia in our federal election. Um, Clinton, I think, really did not, not play hardball, but really did minimize religious freedom. Similarly, in Australia, the, uh, the Bill Shorten Labor opposition really did take a dig at religion in the 2017 election on the back of things like the George Pell episode. We also had a Tongan football player who was saying some things that were purportedly homophobic on Instagram. So on the back of that, they took a real negative attitude towards religion. And I think the premise was the more we attack people who worship, the more the elite class will worship us. That was the premise. And for both, it backfired. It backfired, I think, both in 2016 in America and in 2017 in Australia, because I think kicking down on people of faith uh, for whatever reasons is not an electoral winner. You know, I was in Australia a few weeks before that election, uh, as, as, I, as I mentioned, and it was, I was with a conservative group, and they all thought, we're going to get killed in two weeks. It, I it's know, so it was, bad. It is yeah. so bad. We're done. I mean, they were, they were talking about the conservative— you know, Liberal Party in in yeah. in the Australia well, was was over. Labor yeah. has got got out, and and how could they be so wrong? Oh, well, I mean, the the media class really does live in in an enclosed bubble, uh, and you know you're dealing basically with uh, upper middle class white progressives who like cannabis flavored tofu, and kind of you know. Um, you know, Latvian poetry, you know, I mean, you're dealing with her who live in a very closed echo chamber, uh, who, who just don't know anyone, particularly from the ethnic working class. And I would argue that uh, Brexit, the election of Trump and the uh, re-election of Scott Morrison, despite all the odds, was a revolt of the working class against our progressive elite overlords. 
uh, to be a somewhat uh, dramatic and hyperbolic way of putting it. So that's what I see happen. I should say that since then, the Morrison government has been uh, defeated, and we currently have the uh, Albanese government, which is a Labor Party government. Yeah. In in the book, you talk about America and Australia, and at one point you say something that might surprise a lot of people. You say that America and Australia are not secular countries. What do you mean by that? Well, in, in the sense that um, there's there's different ways of being secular. You know, there's the secularism of North Korea, where if they find you holding a Bible or a Quran, they will either put you in prison or blow your brains out. Uh, you've got the secularism of France, uh, which has a long history, and in its, I think, its germinal stages, it was virulently, you know, laicite was virulently anti-Catholic, as it was anti-Semitic. You've got the secularism of the United Kingdom, where at one level you have a, a kind of state church with the Church of England and a certain, you know, with the Church of Scotland, yet you have a, a Christian king, a Hindu prime minister, uh, a Buddhist um, home secretary, and a Muslim mayor of London. So, I mean, that's one type of secularism. What I prefer to say is Australia and America are, multi are multicultural countries with secular government. Government is uh, and should be secular. I think that's one of the geniuses of the American system, maintaining the secularity of uh, government. But the land, the people, the culture, the institutions are not mandated to be secular. And that's an important distinction because people often say to me, like, Mike, Australia's a secular country. Just get your religion and go hide in a cave. And I say, well, no, Australia is not a secular country. We're a multicultural country with a secular government. We're a land of all faith and none. And secularism, at its best, is about creating space for people of all faith and none, defining the areas where religion is not allowed to matter and defining the areas where religion must be immune from coercion. You, you, you actually say that, that there's a difference between secularism and militant secularism. Uh, when you talk about that slide of secularism into a militant form, uh, when and, and why did that process begin, do you think? Oh, I think it begins with good old-fashioned anti-clericalism. I mean, and there's a long tradition of that. We can go back into the Middle Ages, into the Protestant Reformation, certainly in the, the 19th century, and it has its own uh, manifestations in the 20th and 21st century. So I think it kind of comes on the back of anti-clericalism, but wants to apply it or prosecute it at a public level, where it's not just about defining the spaces between uh, religion and non-religion, or the, the spaces where religion is it can matter and where it can't. It's about deliberately uh, marginalizing and pushing religion out of the public spaces, Okay. Uh, it's it's something that's done uh, with a real aggressive animus against uh, religion and, and people of faith in general. So I think that that's the difference between because uh, normally uh, secularism, I would argue, is kind of a is 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 a creation, a Christian creation. It's the way Christendom learned to learn to learn to live with religious diversity between Catholics and Protestants. So secularism is a, is a explicitly Christian creation. And it was also useful for when you've got a more globalistic world, immigration from everywhere. So you've got Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, and peoples of, of all faiths and none. It's, it's a way that they can live together in harmony. But secular, secularization in the militant sense is the attempt to aggressively remove 
and even take punitive measures against faith communities because you don't like their religion. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. And, and you said a moment ago, and you, you, you say also in the book, that in this sort of sort of militant version, we see LGBTQ rights being uh, a core issue. Actually, you, you sort of say it's the prime battle right now that religious freedom, religious liberty is, <coughs> is facing, at least the prime theater in, in, the, in the longer conflict. Uh, is there anything to say about the fact that the, the LGBTQ population is actually very tiny. It, it's it's less. It's about three percent in in the United States. Um, is there anything odd about that? Do you think? Oh well, not really. Um, you know, I would tend to say the purpose of laws and constitutions are to protect minorities from the majority, whether you're dealing with a sexual minority, an ethnic minority, or religious minority. So the idea that minorities of any type will be protected from bullying and will not have their rights taken away, I would say is a good thing and is something that is particularly characteristic in jurisdictions with a Christian heritage, particularly Europe, North America, and the former British colonies. Uh, this is not something that is generally a, a concern in, in parts of the Middle East or, or in different types of civilization around the world. What we're struggling with is to find a, a way of managing differences within diversity. The way people are, who, you know, LGBT of, of all types of religion, uh, the way we can live together without burdening one another with um, each other's convictions or uh, passions or interests and not subjecting each other to uh, needless discriminations. And I, I would prefer to see it as a means of balancing rights. The problem is instead we're developing this hierarchy of identities and that is what I think is obscuring what is going on. I think we, uh, we do need to balance um, things. You know, like I said, I don't think you can, you can use your religion to sack an employee for being gay or bisexual. By the same token, I don't think you should be um, expecting a school to hire you, uh, say like a Lutheran school, uh, if you are, uh, you, know, you know, Catholic and have a pathological hatred of Martin Luther. I mean, you're not going to be the best person to be the provost of a Lutheran college. And we're, we're losing that ability to live with differences. Instead, there's this expectation that every part of society, every institution will be a microcosm of the wider society. And that, I, that I think, is getting in the way of what we want to achieve or what, it, what is a diverse, tolerant, and pluralistic society. Yeah. What, this may be... Uh, r related to what you said a moment ago, what was the 2020 legislation in your state of Victoria on gender identity? Yeah, this was uh, some legislation brought forward on uh, gender uh, banning uh, 
gay conversion therapy and gender suppression. Now, I mean, here's the story, here's the irony. Uh, every major religious body in, in my state of Victoria supported in principle the legislation, okay? So they supported in principle a ban on, you know, harmful, somewhat primitive and even cruel um, gay conversion therapies, like locking a teenager and a kid with a bunch of porno magazines and say, come out when you like girls, you know, kind of, you know, really harmful stuff like that. And, and we've, we've heard the stories, there's documentaries about them. The Anglicans, the Catholics, uh, the Muslims, the Jewish, the Jewish community said, we support a ban on these conversion therapies. The problem was the uh, Daniel Andrews government supported um, a, a definition of gender suppression that was so incredibly broad, uh, it, it even alarmed the medical community because it meant a psychologist, psychiatrist, or a physician, if they questioned a, a person's self-diagnosis of something like gender dysphoria, that could have been interpreted as an act of suppression. So they did, thankfully, in the end, amend the legislation. But let me just mention some things by why this legislation is concerning. Uh, this legislation explicitly prohibits prayers, certain types of prayers. So you cannot pray for someone to change their sexual orientation. Uh, but that itself is a little bit ambiguous because, you know, what if I pray for my, you know, dear friend, a parishioner, someone who comes to me for counsel, if I just pray that my my friend will learn to, will discern within the precincts of their own conscience how to walk in holiness before God. If holiness entails that they cannot simply pursue their unbridled lust, that could potentially be interpreted as a form of suppression of their gender identity and sexual orientation. Uh, and, the other thing and, about and, the legislation, the attack, well, well, I was just going to say, and the way in which activists have seized upon legislation, which seemed, you know, in, in its basic language to be sort of a moderate kind of thing, but they've implemented that by running away with it, you know, by taking it and, and pushing it to an extreme interpretation that I don't think the legislators would have supported if they saw it going in the, that direction, that, that, that it's a fair concern for people to have yes yeah but yeah exactly exactly but it's weird that you have a government who has literally prohibited certain types of prayers i don't know of any any legislature in the world that has banned certain types of prayers now again i i think i can see the the good intention behind it but it's also open to a broad thing like if i mentioned praying for holiness for my lgbt friend and leave it to them how they work it out that could be potentially interpreted as gender suppression. The Attorney General's Memorandum of Understanding said they also intend to target, I quote, informal conversations. So if someone <laughs> comes up to you over coffee and asks you a question about something to do with LGBT issues, and if they don't like the answer, they can actually make a complaint about you based on informal conversations. Uh, and, and so there's just, just a number of um, problematic elements with the legislation. Now, let, let me be clear. This doesn't mean people are necessarily going to go to jail. The jail offenses are only for the more extreme things like sending kids off to anti-gay camp in you know, Russia or somewhere. Most of the time, you're going to end up with mediation or some sort of you know, tribunal that will, that will uh, have a hearing. Uh, but it, it's, it's incredibly pr problematic legislation 
and uh, it can easily be uh, expanded and weaponized against uh, yeah. any religious community that doesn't hold to the latest progressive orthodoxies on sex, family, and marriage. Yeah. You, you find it remarkable and disturbing that the political left in the United States and Australia have, have dropped their traditional politics of class and income and taken up what you call, quote, identity warfare. This is the kind of thing you mean, right? The identity yeah, warfare. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think this has been – this exp partly explains, I think, the, the rise of Trump, Brexit, uh, the election of Scott Morrison. Again, uh, the political left has abandoned the working class constituency and is fed instead um, enthralled to this hierarchy of identities. And they're focusing on that on their priority. Now, again <laughs> – I, ha I do have some sympathy with that because I, I know that, you know, women, um, so indigenous people, people of color, various ethnic communities, sexual, I mean, they do experience distress and discrimination. But there is this almost demonizing of the, of the working class in, in some sense because they do not have the same priorities. They're concerned with economic security and making a living rather than things like climate change, or, you know, um, drag queen story time. I mean, and there is a certain contempt for the working class, be they white, Hispanic, or black, because they have not realigned their whole worldview around, among what matters most to our sort of elite political and media class. Yeah. You know, during the, you, you mentioned Trump, it, it was funny how uh, after the election, there was a lot of criticism of the white working class for supporting Trump and that uh, that they seem to be functioning kind of as a racial group. And the irony is that leading up to that election, they were constantly they were constantly defined as a, a racial group by by the media, by by left oriented, liberal oriented journalists. And it, it, it's almost uh, you know, they, they, they were, well, it, it did become a lot of contempt expressed it did, it for did. them. And I think that people were trading in the politics of contempt. Uh, look, I mean, me personally, I am definitely not a Trump fan, but I found it interesting that every, I mean, I, I go to America once or twice a year, and I can honestly say every Cuban American I've met was a Trump supporter, which kind of, which kind of weirded me out at first. But then when I spoke to them, and found out why. I mean, like, you know, if your relatives were, um, you know, killed by the Castro regime, if you and your father fled, you know, Cuba um, to, away from the uh, dictatorial uh, violence of the, of the Cuban regime, and if Trump is the only one who's going to take a hard line against the Castro regime uh, and it offers you better opportunities for work and employment and a better standard of living, uh, then that's always going to win. Uh, in, in people's minds and, and imaginations, both in terms of their own uh, distinct values, but also in the case of their own economic self-interest. And that, that is what I think was really forgotten by the Democrat Party, certainly in 2016. They went for these largely boutique identitarian values rather than being concerned with the typical uh, distresses of daily existence that most people live with. Yeah. I, I want to get to the, the later part of the book where you, you lay out uh, a way forward 
uh, a plan, and you refer to something called the Thessalonian strategy. What is that? Well, when Paul and his co-workers uh, arrived in Thessalonica, uh, some of the uh, community there was alarmed that these Christians who have been turning the world upside down um, have arrived in their midst. And I think we've got to do that. Uh, at the moment, uh, the Christian West seems to be divided between uh, Christian nationalists and the somewhat um, autocratic-leaning uh, progressives, or at least those who want to um, have a very strong hand in reordering society among, among their progressive values. That is the two temptations I think we are facing, and I don't think any of them are pretty, pretty good for a healthy uh liberal democracy going forward. And I, I think Christians have got to be willing to resist and call out both. We've got to be willing to resist the temptation to find a political strongman, a political messiah who will vanquish all our enemies. But we've also got to be willing to speak truth to uh, power when we're told that we need to, um, our crosses are okay as long as we adorn them in a rainbow flag or with a red flag or with whatever the latest niche thing on the political left is. We've got to be willing to resist the ideologies of power on the left and the right and make sure that our primary political objective is that the lordship of Christ in our hearts, in our minds, in our churches. And, uh, and, and, and on, based on that principle, you know, think about how do we live um, in peace with our neighbor? How do we love our neighbor, whether that's a gun owner in Alabama whether that's a bisexual uh, man in Massachusetts, how do we live at peace with our neighbor? How do we uh, live out our Christian values in, in a far more contested, complex, and divisive world? Uh, you, you say there's one idea for believers or the church is to, quote, go where government has failed. Uh, that that that's a place where you know positive intervention, positive activity. Give us an example of that. Well, I mean, there's a number of examples. Probably the the number one area would be the philanthropic center. Uh, churches uh, have two thousand years of experience of you know doing things like you know drug rehabilitation centers, looking after the poor. This is this is this is this has been the bread and butter of Christian ministry. Uh, we also have a good track record in education. Uh, so, I mean, I know there's a number of great uh, Catholic charter schools, a big program. I think I learned from your very podcast that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a great movement of Catholic charter schools around the U.S. Uh, in those places where the U.S. government or any government is failing, we have the chance to uh, pursue Christian excellence in the areas of life that matter to people and are desperately needed. And I think, I think we still have that, that, that opportunity, that avenue and it would be unwise for us not to seize that opportunity and offer Christian witness in those areas. The book is Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, A Christian Case for Liberty, Equality, and Secular Government. Dean Bird, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Mark, and it's great chatting to you and uh, all your listeners. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.